0: Hello and welcome to Youthful Idiots. I'm Erin Matte.
1: And I'm Katie Halper.
0: And we have an exciting show this week as we uh, continue to live on the brink of Armageddon in these exciting times. Katie, how was your uh, you know, near Armageddon going for you?
1: I'm just not thinking about it, basically. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. how I'm coping.
0: You? Fair enough. Yeah, I think it's a wise choice. Yeah, it's wise. Well, luckily, we have the four food groups to keep us going. And uh, this week, what do we have for Democrats Suck?
1: So for Democrats Suck, we have an interesting uh, little story that I came across from Braxton Brew on Twitter, who writes a lot about student debt. So I'm just going to read his tweet. It says, you can't make this up. The Department of Education estimates it'll cost $99,900,000 to operate the application for student debt cancellation. They would literally rather spend $100 million on means testing than just canceling the debt automatically. So um, yeah, means testing uh, is already a pretty disgusting thing for various reasons we can get into, but I do think it's interesting that uh, it is so costly to administer means testing.
0: So to cancel the debt, it's going to cost at least $99 million?
1: Yes, that is it. That's true. That's what they're going to, well, only because they're means testing.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And can you explain what that means to to mean test for people? Yeah, means
1: testing means you have to apply and you have to reach certain or uh, meet certain criteria. A lot of people wanted this to just be across the board cancellation without having to meet criteria, which is, of course, what should happen. Because when you do things, things like this, it's better to have kind of blanket cancellations because then people are less stigmatized and it becomes something that's kind of a universal right as opposed to something that only certain people can access
0: and that's what initially was billed as right it was supposed to be pretty much across the board with very few exceptions right Right. but they kind of then they're like "Mm, actually Actually,
1: we're gonna make this only eligible for
0: a small number of people yeah yeah
1: Yeah. it's really gross
0: yeah all right but not surprising Not surprising, because Democrats suck. Because Democrats suck, indeed. Well, so for Republicans suck, uh, look, a lot of exciting races right now ahead of the midterms. And uh, we have an interesting one in uh, Ohio featuring J.D. Vance versus Tim Ryan. And they had a debate where uh, weighing in on the very, you know, topical and divisive issue of uh, drug criminalization. And this is what J.D. Vance, the Republican candidate, shared uh, in terms of his thoughts. It's a one I think it should be a state's issue state should make these decisions. Second, I don't want anybody going to prison for smoking a joint. Uh, That's not at all what I want to do. The third thing is we got to be careful here, not to be soft on crime, because a lot of times you'll hear somebody thrown in prison for smoking a joint, which I, I just said, I don't think that's a good idea. That's not something that we should be doing. But that's just true on paper. And if you look at the underlying charge, you'll see it wasn't just that they smoked a joint, it's that they smoked a joint and then beat an elderly woman over the head with a pistol. Those people should go to prison and just having pled down to a so-called nonviolent drug offense they should still be going to jail we have to be careful about how we do this we don't want to be soft on crime for people like that
1: we want to be hard on them we want to beat them over the head with a pistol hard (laughs) on them
0: i've never heard of that before where somebody beats an elderly person over the head with a pistol but then pleads down to a marijuana charge i mean i don't know they
1: do good on their lawyer
0: yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic legal skills right there. Yeah. If you can play down from that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, usually marijuana doesn't induce people to uh, beat people over the head or it induces them to play video games or right. riff on their guitar or eat food, you know, right. get the munchies. But-,
1: but maybe what if the grandmother came in and disconnected their amp or their <laughs> video game? And then in a fit of pot induced fury, uh that person whipped out a pistol beat the beat Graham over the head
0: that probably was the very argument that won the case to be yeah. played down that's yeah. that's very convincing i would yeah. accept that sentence reduction right there for yeah. sure if right. i heard right. that that uh, alibi
1: so jd vance is on to something
0: yeah all right jd vance fair enough touche touche
1: Well, so for Isn't That Weird, we have a kind of charming, kind of weird, kind of problematic, if I'm being honest, story about a bear, fat bear competition. You know, it's interesting. Last week, uh, we had a cheating scandal that rocked the uh, fishing weight world. This week, we have a scandal, a cheating scandal. This was a voting scandal that rocked the bear, uh, fat bear world.
0: It's that time of year again. Fat Bear Week is back and bulkier than ever. Hi, Sorry, buddy, but it's true. Still, rude. The fun fan-favorite competition is an annual collaboration between the National Park Service and Alaska's Katmai National Park to celebrate these titans of tubbiness and champs of chubbiness during their season of pre-hibernation weight gain. As always, voters can download a bracket of the hefty heavyweights going head to head. But this year, there are some robust features as well, like an interactive slider that lets you marvel at the bears, amazing transformations and even a junior fat bear competition that let voters wet their wild animal weight gain whistle ahead of the big fat main event.
1: Now it came down to two, um, to two bears, to two chubby bears. Um, but the winner of the competition was let's, let's. Let's show people who the winner was, Wilson. 747 is cleared for landing. Introducing your 2022 Fat Bear Week champion. Let's take a look at this guy. He's pretty cute and pretty chubby. Looks pretty prepared for winter. I think he's peeing right there. Struggling. Probably harder to lift himself up with all that extra heft. But there was a cheating scandal, someone spam voted and luckily the people um, who run this competition were hip to it. They realized there was a spam issue. They realized that one of the bears votes shot up very suddenly um, and it could have actually destroyed the integrity of this election. But luckily they were aware of it and they were able to uh, spot it. They don't want to reveal exactly how the person did it because they don't want to train these cheaters. They don't want to give away any hints but they were able to um they now include one of those like capture things where you have to write the word out to make sure that you're not a robot so the good news is that we are can be confident that the actual winner won
0: well that's uh, reassuring
1: it is yeah
0: you know i'm just wondering you know how like when we when we refer to like powerful lobby groups like big tobacco big pharma so is the bear lobby is it big bear
1: It is bear. It's big, fat bear.
0: Big fat bear. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I like, I like that these bears are reward. I think this is good. It's not, you know, it's not body shaming. It's, it's kind of encouraging full figuredness. It's embracing the, the, it's it's encouraging bears to embrace their Rubenesque nature, which is important (laughs) in this, in this era of body shaming, no eating disorders for these guys. All right. So that's weird, but uplifting.
0: We're but uplifting. All right. So for isn't that terrible? We have uh, yet another admission from a uh, prominent neocon that the U.S. is using Ukraine uh, to fight Russia and is fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. This has been, you know, the talking point of progressive critics like us for a long time. But now you have more and more people who support the proxy war are saying it. We've heard, we heard Lindsey Graham say it. And the latest to basically say it is uh, retired General Jack Keane speaking on
2: Fox News. There are people uh, in the Congress and some of them on, uh, some of them Republicans who have always expressed some concern about spending uh, in terms of spending money uh, on this, u- on Ukraine. But, you know, we, we've got a $6 trillion budget. It's actually larger than that, Uh BY A FEW HUNDRED BILLION, AND WE'VE INVESTED, AND I MEAN INVESTED, uh, $66 BILLION uh, IN UKRAINE THIS YEAR, AND THAT'S LIKE 1.1%. AND WHAT ARE WE GETTING FOR THAT? FOR $66 BILLION, WHAT WE'RE GETTING IS UKRAINE IS DOING THE FIGHTING they are literally destroying the Russian army on the battlefield, which would set them back for years and deny them the ability to ever accomplish under Putin any of his ambitions in terms of taking back some of the Soviet republics. And by the way, if that happened, that would mean war with NATO and Russia. And the scale of that would be much greater than what it is right now. And the risk, certainly, of nuclear war would be much greater, it's something we have avoided all through the Cold War, a conventional war with two superpowers holding nucle- strategic nuclear weapons. So for this investment, I think it's well worth it. So this is a great investment. We're it's paying great. only $66 billion. Which it's is a bargain. Easy. It's a bargain. Bargain
0: investment, it's a great deal. And he's also saying that doing this proxy war actually avoids a larger war with uh, Russia, a nuclear war in the future. So, yes, sure, Biden's talking about Armageddon and there's nuclear threats being curled uh, from different corners. But this is all just really a way to avoid all that by fighting right now. It's like a, a down payment now on avoiding something far worse in the future, according to his logic.
1: I mean, what, what do you think of that argument, by the way? Because I think it's an argument that people believe in strongly enough to say out loud.
0: Well, first of all, OK, look, let's say Putin was crazy enough to want to invade a NATO state, right, um, as Keene says he is. We've seen how much of a hard time Russia has had invading Ukraine which is uh, a country right on its border and where it even has allies. I mean, the rebels in the Donbass, Russia has right. been backing for the last eight years. And still, Russia has been having a very, very hard time. So even if Putin was crazy enough to want to invade NATO states uh, and set off a world war, uh, he's shown in Ukraine that he doesn't have the capacity to militarily. So none of this makes sense. And the idea that you know he'll be emboldened to invade other NATO countries, If he succeeds in Ukraine, it's just that means you're ignoring everything that Russia has proposed before this war began to try to avoid the war. Uh, The point in Ukraine was to prevent Ukraine from becoming another NATO proxy. Now, they've already accepted the NATO proxies that exist. They just don't want another one, especially in a country where there's millions of people who identify with Russia. And as parts of the country that uh, used to be a part of Russia long ago, and those parts now Russia has just annexed again. But so the idea that like somehow Ukraine is like the first step to go elsewhere, I think is just ridiculous. Yeah.
1: Well you heard it here first.
0: Yeah. But it's uh it's terrible. It's terrible. terrible, But it's also great that it's admitted because uh it's helpful for people to understand what really is guiding the US behind this conflict.
1: Right. They really pulled back the curtain.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And it is frustrating because the way that like Putin has been turned into this Hitler makes it seem like all the rules of negotiation or diplomacy or engagement are off the table.
0: Yes. And on that note, check out what was just published in the Washington Post, which says this, quote, privately, U.S. officials say neither Russia nor Ukraine is capable of winning the war outright, but they have ruled out the idea of pushing or even nudging Ukraine to the negotiating table. That is an amazing admission, but very telling. So privately, U.S. officials are saying that neither Russia nor Ukraine is capable of winning. So they know that Ukraine is not capable of winning, but yet still, they're not willing to push them or even nudge them to the negotiating table. And that's because the policy is, as Jack Keane laid out there, the policy is just to use Ukraine to fight Russia, to weaken Russia. It's not actually to help Ukraine win, which they know privately Ukraine cannot do. So basically, U.S. policy is just endless war and sacrificing as many Ukrainians as it takes. That's what they're privately admitting.
1: That's so disgusting.
0: But uh, that's, what, that's where it's at. And unless uh, some sort of force rises up in the U.S. to uh, promote diplomacy, except for like, I don't know, a small fringe of the Republican Party, which aren't exactly even promoting diplomacy, they're just condemning Biden and voting against the war, then uh, we're going to see this go on for a very long time. And right now, there's no organized force, certainly inside inside the Democratic Party, that wants to push Biden to negotiate. So he has no incentive politically to change his policy, at least right now.
1: And it's so disgusting because people who care about Ukrainians, and we all know that that's a very popular, I mean, that's not like people shouldn't care about Ukrainians, but as many people have pointed out, there's empathy and sympathy and solidarity for Ukrainians that we never see for Palestinians or Yemenis. But all those people should be up in arms about something like this. This kind of revelation should be disturbing to them because endless war is not good for Ukrainians. That literally means more Ukrainians killed.
0: Yeah, yeah, well. As I said a long time ago, gate is a hell of a drug. People have been propagandized by years of claims coming from the Democratic Party and their allies in the media that Russia is this evil force that's able to brainwash millions of Americans with their troll farms into not voting for Hillary Clinton and now uh, is carrying out this genocidal war in Ukraine and so can't be negotiated with it. There's no right. point. Even diplomacy, people have been conditioned to believe that people have not been told that actually there have been negotiations, which, as we've covered, the U.S. ultimately sabotaged. People don't know that because their media just won't tell them. So in that situation, there's very little freedom that people have to come to a conclusion that is outside of the proxy war aims of those in power.
1: And, Aaron, what you're trying to do is you were trying to take all these people who have ingested the Russiagate drug and you want to lock them up into a room until they goes through the sweats and the shakes and kick the habit.
0: Exactly, exactly. You're yeah. reporting
1: as methadone.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. one or man just, methadone clinic. Yeah, I mean, take them down from being at the level of, of, uh, of beating uh, you know, U- Ukraine and Russia with a pistol, just get them on a lower marijuana charge, just to draw J.D. Vance's analogy from before. Right, you know, exactly. If that makes sense, if yeah. that doesn't make sense. I'm trying to do a callback.
1: Yeah, no, that was good. That was well done. We are really excited to be talking to Wyatt Reed, a journalist uh, covering Latin America, who is right now in actually Donetsk. And he's gonna talk about what happened recently, what he's been observing, and also the fact that the hotel he's staying in um, was hit by a Ukrainian artillery strike.
0: Yes, and uh, we should say that Wyatt is a correspondent for Sputnik, which is uh, Russian state media. So he is working for the media arm of a belligerent in this conflict. But it's important to hear from everybody and to get his perspective, especially someone who's on the ground, uh, who is hearing right now a perspective that we don't hear about often in U.S. media, really ever, which is that of the people in the Donbass that have been living not under, not just under this war that's been happening since Russia and in, in February, but living under a war that began actually seven years ago or eight years ago, after the U.S. backed a coup in Ukraine, and people in the Donbass took up arms against the coup-backed government. And they've been living under very tough conditions for the last eight years. And Wyatt is there uh, speaking to people like that, who we don't often hear about in U.S. media. And so we're going to hear a bit of that perspective, too, which I think is very important.
1: All right, let's go to Wyatt.
0: Wyatt Reed, thank you for joining us.
3: Absolutely. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, Wyatt, you recently posted a uh, video of the aftermath of a strike by Ukrainian forces on Donetsk, uh, where you're reporting from, on your hotel. And you were just very close by when this happened. So let's go to a clip of that and then get you to tell us about what happened. We're here sure. at the corner of
4: Ottoman Street, Rova Ave where a artillery strike by the Kiev regime just rocked this intersection. I was about 100 meters away at the time, and uh, as you can see, the devastation is incredible. This is a normal occurrence for the people of Donbass, uh, the people of Donetsk. They are living under this threat every day, and I just got a taste myself. I watched a massive explosion rock this corner. Uh, Huge, huge ball of uh, sparks and flames Um, here at my hotel. uh, Shrapnel from the explosion shattered uh, several windows. And that was uh, pretty lucky. I feel pretty lucky right now. Uh, If I'd have been 30 seconds a minute faster to get back to my hotel. I was walking back from a restaurant. If I'd been just a few seconds faster, I would have been killed. It's hard to describe this as anything other than terror tactics. This is uh, fascism in action, and uh, it's why so many people here Deeply appreciative of Russian forces, Russian Federation forces, uh, for finally acting to put an end to this madness that's been happening for eight years. Eight years
0: of living with this. So, why? Tell us about what happened here. Uh, where were you? Uh, where this strike hit? And uh, what the situation is? Where you're reporting from right now in Donetsk?
3: Right. Well, in many ways, I think that the video kind of speaks for itself. I published that video in the immediate aftermath of basically my first physical interaction with the Ukrainian government. Uh, This was not my first interaction because two weeks prior to this video, two weeks prior to Saturday night, my uh, first day, my first night in Donetsk, I was placed on the Ukrainian government's official kill list it's called So This was my second kind of physical interaction uh, with the Ukrainian government. And it was terrifying. It was uh, really an impressive sight to behold to watch up close and personally what People here have been living through for close to nine years now. It's hard to put it into words. So when that blast went off, I I had only been here for about two hours. I walked out of my hotel, went to try to go find something to eat. It's very hard to find uh, food uh, past a certain time. There's no water here in Donetsk most of the time. Uh, We're living kind of in a war zone. So I knew it was kind of a fool's errand to go out, but I, I went out anyway. And I'm, I'm glad that I went and looked around a little bit further than the first restaurant because if I had gone back immediately, I very likely would have been right in the middle of that strike when it hit. Uh, instead, I was about 30 seconds, maybe a minute away from the blast radius. I got to watch it from about 100 meters away. Just this huge ball of, uh, it was like a firework, the most terrifying firework you've ever seen up close because of, instead of just shooting sparks, it's shooting hot bits of shrapnel all over the place. It shattered uh, a number of windows on the hotel. Shrapnel went into the front door of the hotel. Uh, I watched this from a distance, felt it in my heart, in my body. I had glass rain down all around me from the windows above me that were shattered. And I just went into kind of fight or flight mode. I crouched down and I pulled out my phone and recorded the aftermath. Uh, it wasn't that video that we just saw. It was, it was a video that I uploaded a few minutes prior. Um, and, you know, maybe we could play that later. If not, you know, people can find that on my social media, uh, but you really get a sense for kind of the terror that it's like that, that, that one experiences when they go through something like this, I'm basically just cursing. Um, constantly for about a minute and not sure what to do. I wanted to go run back into the hotel. I wanted to seek refuge. I think that's just kind of a human instinct. But uh, I had to resist that urge because, uh, which was screaming at me, you know, with every fiber of my being, because people who observe the tactics of the Kiev regime uh, will know this, others may not. But they frequently employ a tactic that military personnel might refer to as a double tap, which is a follow up strike. So they wait a few minutes for civilians to gather around to check out the devastation for first responders to come. And then they strike again to take them out as well. Uh, so that was my worry. I didn't want to be caught up in the second strike that might have been coming. But uh, instead, I said, well, maybe the second strike hits closer to me. I better just get inside. So I immediately, you know, about 90 seconds later, just sprinted probably as fast as I've ever run in my life right into the hotel. Uh, the rest of the hotel guests had already been ushered into the bomb shelter in the basement. And all of the staff was down there as well, except for the head of security. And he wanted to usher me in as well. Uh, but I wanted to stay up where the, where this is happening and be able to record the reality of the situation. You know, that's, that's why I'm here. I'm here in Donetsk because basically the mainstream media refuses to come here. They refuse to come and show what's happening on the ground, this situation that people have been living through for eight long years. There is no one else here really from the West. I can count the number of Western journalists on one hand that are here covering this situation. Uh, So I felt compelled to basically record the reality that all these people have been suffering through for so long. And so I, I, waited it out. I stuck it out. And uh, then you saw that that video that we just posted where I kind of explained the situation. And um, yeah, as I said, it's kind of hard to put into words what it feels like to be on the receiving end of one of those strikes um, to be targeted by this. I do feel targeted personally. It's hard for me to know for sure that I was the specific target. Uh, although the fact that I I uh, had only been here for about an hour and a half, maybe two hours at the maximum. The fact that I had just communicated my location through WhatsApp 30 minutes to an hour before this happened. WhatsApp is a notorious app around here. Uh, people don't use it because they understand that it's a product of Facebook, which is a, obviously a U.S. government aligned tech service. It's filled with ex-CIA officials, ex-FBI wow. officials. It works kind of hand in glove with the U.S. government. So there's a sense that it's being monitored. Um, I can't say for sure whether I was being targeted specifically as a journalist or whether all of us as international journalists who stay at this hotel were being targeted. But uh, it it was the third strike on this block in two months. Thank God no one was killed or injured this time as opposed to last time. Time before, last time at least one, uh, I believe one civilian was murdered, was killed in what can really only be described as a terrorist attack. Uh, there are no military installations here in front of this block, in front of this hotel. It's a civilian area. So, uh, you know, to me, I think in some ways the video speaks for itself, but uh, I feel my, you know, I feel personally uh, incredibly blessed to have gotten a chance to to see this from, I won't say a safe distance, But at least out of the immediate blast radius, I wasn't hit with any shrapnel. I wasn't killed. I wasn't injured. And when I came back inside, you know, after everyone else came up, I got a chance to kind of decompress. And we ended up, uh, me and other guests and other journalists and even the hotel staff kind of standing around and drinking some whiskey and kind of discussing what had happened and what I got from... My colleagues and from you know my my friends, I consider those people friends now because we went through a pretty traumatic experience together. Uh, they said, "Welcome to Donetsk." They said, uh, "You survived your baptism by fire." You know, welcome to Donetsk. And to me, it's it's just um, it's breathtaking. And honestly, I want to note that uh, you guys are probably the biggest sort of uh, American Western platform that I've been invited on. I. No one from Western media has really reached out to me about this experience. I think if this had happened on the other side of the front line, this would be something that was replayed in mainstream media for weeks. But instead, you know, I've only really spoken to you guys. I've spoken to Russian media. I've spoken to a pretty big Indian TV channel. I've spoken to Iranian media. But it doesn't seem like anybody in the West really cares about, um, you know, my near-death experience at the hands of the Zelensky regime.
1: Except for, I know you've spoken to some smaller outlets, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, well, you guys are, are the biggest one, but, you know, I, I've spoken to uh, Danny Haifang I just got off an uh, interview with him with the Black Agenda Report uh, podcast. And, you know, outside of you guys, yeah, it's um, this is it.
0: Well, that's a reflection of the refusal in Western media to acknowledge the suffering of people In the place where you are, which is Donetsk, um, which along with Luhansk revolted against the U.S.-backed coup government in 2014 and have been under fire for the last eight years, as you say. But for people who aren't familiar with that history, uh, you're saying that what you experience is a taste of what people have been living under since 2014 uh, in the area where you are. Can you give just a a quick background of, of what that experience Has been like and why they've been under fire, why they've been facing attacks for the last eight years?
3: People here have been experiencing these attacks because they are perceived as as being pro-Russian. They are perceived as being traitors to the quote-unquote Ukrainian cause. So they are subjected to these attacks as kind of a punitive measure, as a way of uh, trying to punish them for their decisions, their refusal, i rather, to submit to the whims of uh, the regime in Kiev, uh, really of the whims of Washington and of the United Kingdom, because that's really who kind of uh, controls the situation. That's who pulls the strings. What we're witnessing now is kind of the inevitable conclusion, I would say, of not just things that have been set in motion since this civil war started in 2014, But really, going back to 2006 is when I would kind of say this this got set in motion when the United States uh, insisted and declared that Ukraine and and Georgia would become part of NATO. And this uh, decision to basically, at any costs, pull Ukraine away from the Russian orbit and into the Western orbit uh, had some predictable consequences. And... You know, it's not uh, just me as somebody, you know, I I work for Sputnik. And so I get frequently disparaged as being like a Kremlin puppet, a a Putin propagandist. Uh, But it's not me who's just saying this, right? This is something that you can find from Henry Kissinger. You can find former heads of the CIA explaining this. Basically, the idea that Ukraine is the brightest of all red lines for Russia, that this decision, despite any potential consequences, to yank Ukraine away from some kind of sphere of influence of Russia and pull it back into the Western orbit, uh, this is something that people have been warning against a long time. Those in the know understood that this was kind of a declaration of war, because Ukraine isn't... Uh, just any country, this is not uh, Iraq, this is not Afghanistan, this is not Syria, this is not Libya, this is not some country far off, 5,000 you know, kilometers away. This is right on Russia's border, and more importantly, this is the country, this is the entity through which the most recent invasions of Russia by the West have come, be that by Napoleon or be that by Hitler. Uh, every time the West wants to invade Russia, they use Ukraine. So this is an extremely sore spot, not just for Vladimir Putin, but for all Russian people. And really any president, any president who in any way represents the interests of Russian people understands this and would feel the same way. If you got rid of Vladimir Putin somehow, if you, if the CIA or the MI6 was able to assassinate him somehow, whoever came along after him, would feel the exact same way, if not stronger about the situation. Uh, So we don't really understand it in the West in this way. And we have this sense that, oh, you know, uh, it's it's, uh, an imperialist war, a war of adventure, a war of conquest. Uh, Russia wants to come in and, and just take over Ukraine. They want to recreate the Soviet empire. That is not at all how it is seen in Russia. It's certainly not how it's seen here in Donetsk, where people very clearly and openly view Russian forces as liberators. They view them as the force which is protecting them from this uh, Zelensky regime, which, you know, I I heard and had been told wanted to kill them. And now I know firsthand, personally, for myself, wants to kill not just the civilians in Donetsk, but anybody who comes here to tell their story.
0: But what have they told you about what the last eight years have been like in this civil war?
3: It's been what I experienced. It's been this same thing happening over and over and over again. It's been 15,000 people have died. Before February 24th, there were 15,000 casualties in this region and 80% of them were on the Russian side. So this is nothing new to people here. In many ways, you know, I kind of explain my experience to people. Everyday, average citizens, people on the street, people who work at the hotel, and they're all kind of like, "Oh, wow, that happened to you too, huh?" So, how did it feel like? It wasn't. Nobody was shocked. Nobody is surprised. Nobody expressed any kind of alarm or dismay. It was just kind of like, "Wow, uh, I guess they'll they'll come after you guys too." And, you know, as an American here, and some of I, I expected to be treated with a level of maybe disgust, I mean, not disgust, but uh, distrust. Um, but instead, I've been treated with kindness, with openness, with people uh, greeting me and saying, oh, kind of, thank God somebody here for the first time. There's an American here, uh, somebody who can kind of help portray what's happening. Help explain the reality of the situation to Western audiences. uh, It's very similar to the experience, the the way that I've been received in Latin America, which is I went down, you know, the first times I went to Latin American countries where there's this legacy of U.S. imperialism of people living under the boot of uh, either the United States itself or of a a dictator that they have appointed to run their affairs, people generally treat me in a shockingly kind manner uh, in a way that I personally, I feel like if I were in their position would not behave. But uh, people generally, not just here, but all throughout Russia, have positive feelings about American people. They view us in some ways as kind of brotherly people. They view similarities in our culture and our way of, of acting and talking, our sense of humor. Um, but they understand, uh, as I do, that we are being led around by a government that doesn't represent our interests. Just like the people in Ukraine are being led around by a government that does not represent their interests. If they did, they would be seeking peace instead of specifically passing legislation to prevent it instead of, I mean, and it's not even just Zelensky that has this position of, we will not negotiate with Vladimir Putin. We won't negotiate with the Russians until there's regime change in Russia. Uh, this is the position of the United States. This is the position of the UK. As you both know, uh, in April, there was an attempt to sit down, and negotiate a peace agreement And scuttled by then UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who came to Kiev and said, Well, Ukrainians may be ready to negotiate, but the UK government is not. And that's kind of how the dynamic really plays out. It doesn't actually matter what Ukrainian people want. Uh, What matters is that at this point, they are uh, basically viewed as expendable in the same sense that I would say our freedom of speech, our freedom of expression, our freedom of movement. Uh, is also now viewed as expendable by this Western ruling class that uh, is ready to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian.
1: Right. Uh, And we have just today, I mean, Aaron, you tweeted out this. The Washington Post is reporting that privately, U.S. officials say neither Russia nor Ukraine is capable of winning the war outright, but they have ruled out the idea of pushing or even nudging Ukraine to the negotiating table. It's not even uh, disputable, the fact that the U.S. is not trying to push for negotiation or diplomacy.
3: They're not just not willing to negotiate, they're going to actively sabotage and actively scuttle any attempts to negotiate by Zelensky and company. Not that I think any are forthcoming at this point, but to me, it's kind of reminiscent of what Julian Assange said when he explained the war in Afghanistan. He said, it's not about winning the war. The goal is not to beat Uh, to win the war in Afghanistan, the goal is an endless war. The goal is to have a situation in which the United States government and more importantly, its backers and its funders have this opportunity to sell tremendous amounts of weapons and to launder basically the money, the tax base of the U.S. citizenry uh, back into the coffers of this kind of transnational elite and of these defense contractors that really call the shots at the end of the day.
1: And what else uh, stands out to you while you're there on the ground?
3: Well, just from being here in Donetsk, uh, what stands out is we're in a war zone. Um, As you can tell, internet is not great. Uh, I haven't had water since the night that I got here. Running water is very hard to come by. There are constant artillery sounds in the background. Uh, because we're about less than 10 miles from the front line. So what stands out to me is basically just the way that people have been forced to live under these conditions for, in many cases, for for young people for, for most of their lives. And what stood out to me, because I didn't come here directly, I actually came earlier in, in late September, uh, witness and report on the referendums in these four regions, which recently voted to realign with the Russian Federation in uh, votes which have been panned and described as illegal annexations by Western media, uh, which have been mocked as you know, fake elections. They say that, you know, how could 90% of all these people vote in, in favor of all this. Well, first of all, it's not 90% of the entire population. I will say, uh, you know, this isn't obviously the ideal circumstances to hold this kind of referendum. You are dealing with the situation where there's active hostilities. You're dealing with the situation where there's massive displacement. But those that did come out and vote, voted overwhelmingly in favor of it. And in terms of my personal experience with that, I did not see anybody being forced at gunpoint by some Spetsnaz with an AK to the back of their head to go vote. Uh, What I saw overwhelmingly was people who expressed to me those that uh, I interviewed. I spoke with dozens of people and those that were willing to be interviewed uh, told me basically this is our first chance at real self-determination. They said that we have been deprived of our basic liberties, our basic ability to function as human beings. We haven't had access to food and jobs and water and education, roads, energy, gas, all of these things that people in a modern society expect and need to survive and to thrive. Uh, They expressed in a way that I don't see in the United States, I should say, uh, a real determination to go out and vote for this at any cost, knowing that there would be retribution by Kiev forces. So uh, my my interactions with them were very emotional. I spoke with a woman and her 81-year-old mother who uh, both broke down in tears about 45 seconds into my interview with them. When I asked them why did they come out, what does it feel like to have voted, uh, this woman said, my mother has been, I spent two weeks searching for her. She was trapped in a basement for two months and only friends from Moscow helped her. Nobody from Kiev wanted to help us. Only friends from Moscow helped us. I spoke, they had to end the interview at there because they both broke down in tears and they said, we can't, I'm sorry. Uh, And then I spoke later um, in Sevastopol in Crimea with an elderly gentleman about 70 years old. He said, my son is Serving in the Russian Federation forces. He's on the front lines. And through tears, he said, I wish that these so called Western journalists that are saying all of this about the situation would have to spend just one day in my shoes. Because I know if they did, they would never be saying the type of stuff that they spew every day.
1: And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, that was really interesting.
0: Yeah. And we're sorry, everybody. There were some glitches at times because of course, why it's reporting from a war zone, so the internet yeah, is not going to be great, but hopefully people got a sense of what it's like there on the other side of the war, the war that we don't, we don't see here in, in the U S and other parts of the West.
1: Really interesting perspective. Also, RIP to Angela Lansbury, uh, the amazing actress, uh, probably most famous for Murder, She Wrote. But did you know this, Erin? She was actually the granddaughter of a renowned British socialist, George Lansbury, and she herself identified as a socialist. She said, I'm an actress, and I'm also a socialist. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, it's a real whodunit. A real mystery has been solved.
0: The mystery over whether Angela Lansbury was a socialist? Yeah. Oh, wow. Could have been
1: an episode of Murder, She Wrote.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, for more, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com and follow us on the social media platforms that you use, whatever they are. And we'll see you next time.
1: Yeah. And make sure you rate and review us on the podcast and subscribe to us on YouTube and like our videos. Bye, everybody. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash useful idiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at useful idiot pod and use the hashtag useful idiots pod. Join us Mondays at 10 AM for the useful idiots Monday morning show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows. So you don't have to watch them.